The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Rohini Kurup with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 9th, 2022. Two years ago this week, an American drone strike killed Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. For today, I picked an episode from January 3rd, 2020, where a panel of Lawfare and Brookings experts convened to talk about the strike and its fallout. In the episode, Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes sat down with Suzanne Maloney, the head of the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and an Iran scholar, Dan Byman, terrorism expert, Middle East scholar, and Lawfare's foreign policy editor, Tamara coffin wittis Middle East scholar and former State Department official, and Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare senior editor, Brookings fellow, and former State Department lawyer. If you want to learn more about where things stand today, check out the episode of the podcast released this past Wednesday, January 5th, where the panel reconvened to talk about what the past two years have brought. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast Special Emergency Edition, January 3rd, 2020. We were expecting our first Lawfare Podcast of the year to be tomorrow, but fate intervened, and we are gathered in the Jungle Studio today to discuss the strike last night in Iran, uh, in Iraq, uh, that killed uh, Qasem Soleimani and the expected and already unfolding fallout from that with me in the Jungle Studio uh, from the Brookings Institution, Suzanne Maloney, Scott Anderson, and Tamara Wittes, and joining by uh, remote telecommunications capacity, Daniel Byman of Brookings and Georgetown. Guys, thank you all for joining us. Uh, Suzanne, get us started. Um just why is this such a big deal? Who who was Qasem Soleimani and why is a, a drone strike in uh, Iraq to take him out uh, such a uh, seismic event as everyone seems to think it is? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, a huge development, um, one that will catalyze uh, tremendous implications across the region and one that is really change the nature of what has been a kind of shadowy war between Tehran and Washington on and off in in evolving ways over the past 40 years into something that is coming much closer to a direct bilateral military conflict. Qasem Soleimani um, would have relished the opportunity to be part of that, of course. 
He was the commander of Iran's Quds Force, the overseas expeditionary arm of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is, of course, uh, the most important element of the Iranian military structure since the revolution 40 years ago. Um, he had really become almost a brand name, a kind of icon of Iran's overseas and regional expansionism. He was a very charismatic figure. The Iranians made a point, particularly uh, at moments of either internal strain or as their regional posture came under fire, to put him out in a very public way. Um, he would turn up in selfies all over the internet, uh, as well as videos, uh, really from directly from the battlefield, in a way that proved very compelling in terms of shaping a, a public image for him and and for Iran, uh, in terms of its its posture in the region. So, um, while there's a deep bench of Iranian military commanders who've had a lot of experience dating back to the war with Iraq and, of course, in the conflicts that Iran has been engaged in across the region over recent years. Um, it will be difficult to replace the kind of charismatic role that, that uh, Soleimani played. Um, that is a, 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 a fabulous portrait of him and the role he played, but the discussion last night was principally about the escalatory capacity of the action rather than about the uh, persona and uh, and role of the individual who was the target. Um, in your view, was that overstated? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think we are very much in a, in a new world with respect to American uh, options across the Middle East and the risks to our, our forward presence in all kinds of places, but most specifically Iraq. Um, and of course, I think that there is a real potential for further escalation, even if I continue to believe that neither Trump nor Iranian leaders are actually itching for a, a direct clash. All right, Dan. Uh, so when we think of the world's great terrorists, um, for some reason, we, I, I think, largely conditioned by 9-11, we are heavily, heavily focused on Sunni uh, uh, terrorists. And, you know, Iran and Hezbollah are always kind of mentioned as Iran as the sort of principal state sponsor of terrorism, but uh, somehow does not loom in our minds in quite the same way, notwithstanding uh, the barracks bombing uh, and other famous actions. How big a deal from a CT point of view is it to take out Qasem Soleimani? Uh, this is a huge deal from a CT point of view. So Soleimani was someone who was the linchpin of a broader Iranian network. People often use the term Iranian threat network. And he shows up uh, in relation to groups in Yemen, in groups in Syria, groups in Lebanon, and of course Iraq, and in other countries. And if we think about in very narrow terrorism terms, uh, then we could talk about Iran's role as being significant or Hezbollah or other groups. But more broadly, Soleimani is part of a form of what we used to call revolutionary warfare, where Iran is supporting an array of subnational groups, some of which use terrorism, some of which are using insurgency, some of which are using violence as part of the political process. 
Um, and as a result, this has given Iran a lot of influence and a lot of levers around the world. Um, because of that, taking him out um, thus risks angering, retaliation from, however you want to consider it, from a wide array of groups. So when we think about how the response to Soleimani's killing might occur, we can focus on Iraq, where the action has been in the last uh, week, where, of course, Iran has a lot of ties. But we also have to think much more broadly. And this could be throughout the Middle East. It could even be um, in Europe or in other parts of the world. Um, Tammy, when you're thinking about and and we're going to ha- have a broader discussion of this later, what the modalities of the Iranian response will be. But your reaction to this last night was very much in the for- in in the uh, in the department of uh, escalatory potential and where this is going to lead. Uh, so I'm interested in your sense if you're if you're the president and you have the opportunity to have this, very significant counterterrorism accomplishment uh, with the impacts that Dan is describing, but also with the blowback that that both Dan and Suzanne are describing. How do you like how do you even think about whether that's a go or a no way kind of situation? Yeah, I think that is a really important question to ask. And I've spent a lot of time since last night pondering the question of what the American strategy is here and how clear that strategy, if it exists, is to America's adversaries and America's partners, both in the region and around the world. But in order to address that question, I think it's worth drilling down a little bit into the point that Suzanne made, that this is a major departure by the United States from the modality of its confrontation with Iran over 40 years. And so we have to ask, why is this such a departure? I mean, I think for a lot of American listeners who've been living through 18 years of a global war on terror, the idea of a drone strike taking out a bad guy doesn't seem like that different from what we've been doing for a long time. But it is very different when it comes to Iran. The American tools in its confrontation with Iran have involved intelligence, rolling up Iranian intelligence agents, using intelligence to expose Iranian activities, um, interdiction of Iranian arms shipments um, and Iranian plots, sanctions, a lot of sanctions against the Iranian regime and individuals within that regime, um, and American actions against Iranian proxy militias and partners like Hezbollah, like these militias in Iraq. And of course, American um, partnerships against Iran with other governments in the region like Israel and like the Gulf states. We have not in the past engaged in targeted killing of Iranian government officials. Um, And that is a big change. And that's also, by the way, not the usual way that major countries go about confrontation with adversary countries in international affairs. It's a departure in that sense, too, a normative departure. And so for those reasons, it it immediately takes you to this question of, will this generate an escalatory spiral? Now, given the possibility of an Iranian retaliation and an escalatory spiral leading potentially to some larger military confrontation, which, you know, I have to say I don't necessarily think is the most immediate or likely consequence. Um, But given that question, you have to ask, okay, was it worth it? 
what was the American calculation here? And now we have a problem because I think from the very beginning of the Trump administration um, and its approach to first the nuclear deal with Iran and then other dimensions of Iranian behavior in the region and internationally, it really hasn't been clear what the American strategy is, what the American theory of the case is. And, you know, is the Trump administration going for regime change? Is the Trump administration just trying to push the Iranian government to the wall so that it can then open negotiations with Iran in a position of incredible weakness? Is this, as the uh, Pentagon said last night, an effort simply to deter future Iranian attacks on American uh, presence in the region? I don't think that the Trump administration has done a good job of articulating its objectives or its strategy. And as a result, it's very hard to judge any calculation they might have made. All right. So, Scott, we are lawfare. And uh, this is the part where we nerd out over the question of whether this strike was legal and what the legal parameters of it are. So, the Secretary of Defense or the Defense Department last night issues a statement that describes Soleimani as being A, responsible for hundreds of American deaths, B, being responsible for the attack on the embassy the other day, and C, having arrived in, um, in uh, uh, Baghdad intending to uh, carry out additional acts. That strikes me as uh, getting to an, an effort to to articulate a continuing and imminent threat standard. Um, on the other hand, the statement also said the goal was to deter, which is a little bit in tension with that. Today, Secretary Pompeo is much more out front saying uh, Soleimani posed an imminent threat and the, the attack saved hundreds of lives. Uh, as a domestic constitutional law matter and as an international law matter, is this a legit self-defense, quite apart from its wisdom, its escalatory potential? Is this a legitimate Article II or, or, or a, 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 a UN charter action in self-defense? That's a really difficult question, uh, frankly, to answer, as it is in most of these cases. What we see here is the Trump administration appearing, because we don't know since they haven't actually articulated an actual clear legal basis for their actions, but appearing to really be pushing a number of legal theories to their limits, well past where we've seen them taken before. On a domestic law perspective, it's possible they're acting under the president's Article II constitutional authority. Um, in that case, this, you know, on a facial analysis, this is a limited scope in nature, nature, limited strike in nature, scope and duration. It serves U.S. interests protecting U.S. troops, so it seems to fit pretty comfortably. And it's certainly smaller than a lot of other operations, such as, you know, the invasion of Haiti and other things that presidents have pursued in Article II. But the Trump administration itself made a big deal in its last legal opinion applying the standard that a risk of escalation is a very significant factor in evaluating whether Congress should weigh in. There's an undeniable and severe risk of escalation in this case. I don't think anyone denies that and you'd have to be blind to pretend otherwise. Um, and yet they did not feel that that warranted in any way a, an approach to Congress if they're applying their constitutional authority. So it brings into question, well, how seriously did you take the legal opinion you wrote last time? They're relying on statutory authority. They're relying on either the 2001 or the 2002 AUMFs. Um, those are possibilities. The 2001 AUMF, they've said before, uh, or at least supposedly reported to Congress, that the 
They think small little ties between al-Qaeda and Iran, both before and after 9-11 attacks that are fairly transactional, very small in scale, and run counter to the broader trend of general hostility between the two could warrant using the 2001 AUMF. That's an incredibly aggressive reading of the statute, certainly beyond what Congress appears to have anticipated. At the same time, Congress wrote an incredibly broadly worded statute that's expressly deferential to the president. Um, so it's hard to say categorically, particularly if you're the president's advisor, no, you can't do this, um, I, I suspect anyway. The 2002 AMF, meanwhile, only is, is worded that, to address- that, that, For listeners who don't know, the 2002, the 2001 AUMF is the broad AUMF post 9-11 uh, the 2002 AUMF is the Iraq-specific AUMF that authorized the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. Exactly. And the language it uses is to defend against the threat from Iraq. Who knows what that means? Uh, it is in the eye of the beholder. The Trump administration said previously that it interprets it in line really with how Obama administration and Bush administration did to mean military action to promote a democratic Iraq and stable Iraq and address terrorism to or affecting Iraq. Well, in the past, we've used that to support military operations in Iraq, including military operations targeting Qatar, and these other groups that have Iran affiliation. Um, so again, you can see the argument there. Um, the difficulty is that it's just not something a prior president has done, certainly not to go so far as to say, well, we can attack Iran because Iran is destabilizing Iraq and therefore the 2002 AUMF lets us go not only to invade Iraq, but now to perhaps to attack Iranian officials or perhaps even go further um, because there are no limits on the type of use of force it authorizes or the duration thereof. And what about what about as an international law matter, just the, the core self-defense you know, this guy's showing up to attack U.S. forces. It's the same issue, frankly, in terms of these aggressive legal theories. Uh, traditional self-defense view is that if you suffer an armed attack or you're facing an imminent armed attack, you have the right to respond in a manner that is necessary and proportional. Uh, here, you know, the, the United States tends to have very broad ideas of necessary and proportional. They're somewhat idiosyncratic. They're not views that are widely accepted by the international community, but they're longstanding. Um, in terms of proportionality, the most notable Notably, they generally say, hey, we have to uh, we are allowed to not just respond at the same type, you know, killing the same number of people. We can actually eliminate the underlying threat that's threatening us. So it's a broader idea than others accept. In targeting Soleimani, they arguably go beyond that because whatever Pompeo may be seeing today, we at least haven't seen much evidence that someone of Soleimani's level was directly involved in a specific incident or attack. Maybe there is. We've seen similar logic in the cases of people like Al-Walaki and uh, AQAP in Yemen and other cases where you've seen these high-level officials targeted under a similar theory, but we don't know what the evidence is there to support it. Scott, I have a question for you, which is that the Trump administration earlier this year designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization under U.S. law. Um, we, that's not a step that previous administrations had taken. Um, and I wonder, does that under U.S. law give the administration any additional legal cover for a targeted killing in this case? None whatsoever. No. The FTO status is something that, frankly, the Trump administration plays up for mostly rhetorical value, as far as I can tell. It authorizes sanctions against entities that are designated FTOs. It says that they're subject to greater criminal prosecution. Um, but and the, it criminalizes 
third-party material support exactly, of them. Right. Most importantly, it criminalizes that as well, uh, although a lot of that activity is already barred by a separate sanctions regime that the IRGC was designated under prior to that Trump administration action. Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't have much of a nexus here. It's thrown in here because I think people think it has this significance that, frankly, just doesn't in terms of what an FTO is. Right. Although it also helps to blur the line between state-sponsored terrorism and non-state terrorism, which, you know, in terms of the foreign policy tools available and the norms and laws involved, there is quite a difference. The last thing I think to really bear in mind, and it's particularly important from the international perspective, is that this is not a two-way conflict. Um, this is not a case where we shot Qasem Soleimani down over international waters. We blew him up in Iraq, a third sovereign country um, that, A, had expressly, expressly asked us not to use our U.S. military presence there to monitor or interfere or target Iran in any way, and reiterated multiple times. Um, and that usually when you're using military force on a foreign country's territory, you're supposed to seek their consent. Or if you're applying, again, an idiosyncratic U.S. Uh, legal theory as we have in Syria, you can say, well, maybe they're unable or unwilling to address that. Here there's an argument there that they're unable or unwilling to address this real threat, but it's undoubtedly a challenge to the sovereignty of Iraq. And it's one of these things we're going to see Iraq have to respond to, most notably probably by directing us to withdraw the troops that we have there that are there strictly under their consent. And once that consent goes away, we have no legal basis for having that military presence there that's engaged in fighting ISIS and trying to increase Iraqi security. And that's going to be the most immediate casualty, I think, of this new stage in the Iran or, or the Iran-United States relationship is the end of the U.S.-Iraq relationship. All right. So let's let's pivot there to consequences. Uh, Suzanne, if uh, the Iranians have promised revenge, uh, which they normally uh, uh, that's a thing they tend to mean seriously when they say things like that. Uh, if you are Iranian leadership today, what are the levers that you have at your disposal that you're realistically thinking um, this, these are ones that we can pull to make the U.S. pay for what they did yesterday. Well, if you don't mind, I'll actually take issue with the presumption that retaliation is the next step. Um, I think it's inevitable, um, and it's certainly in the works. Um, but what, we, what I think we're likely to see from the Iranians and history may prove me wrong on this over the course of the next few days, uh, is some degree of biding their time. Um, this is a, a cataclysmic blow for uh, the, the most important commander in the Iranian military uh, universe, and it is something that I think uh, has knocked Iran back on its heels in a way um, precisely because they weren't anticipating Trump to suddenly become so risk tolerant. Um, he has uh, made a point, as we've already discussed, of, of um, backing down uh, at prior points as the Iranians have sought to nudge uh, the dynamic up the escalatory spiral. And I think they've been counting on that really as a means of, of enhancing their own leverage. Um, and so this strike comes as a, sur a surprise and a shock to the Iranian leadership. Um, and it comes at a time where Iran is under tremendous strain at home as a result of unprecedented protests that took place in November 
uh, that led to a, a really um, a sort of surreal crackdown um, with hundreds, perhaps more than a thousand killed with gunmen on the street, something that in fact Soleimani and his militiamen in Iraq had perfected in terms of their response to Iraqi protesters who were, uh, like those in Iran, upset about economic conditions, but also upset about corruption and, and the role of Iran in Iraq. Um, and so uh, I think that the Iranian leadership is going to try to take this uh, immediate moment of the aftermath of the killing to try to consolidate their base as much as possible, to try to stoke some nationalist rally around the flag sentiment. Um, we've seen major uh, protests on the street or, or much larger than normal crowds at Friday prayers today. Uh, and I, I think that you know there'll be a certain degree of success in doing that. Um, and that, for the moment, will be the Iranian um, public response. They will look for the most opportune chance to strike back in a way that hurts uh, President Trump personally. They take these things in a, in a very personal fashion. And so um, I would assume that security uh, all around any kind of a Trump property <laughs> ought to be, if it has not already been, uh, significantly enhanced. Um, they will look for other opportunities, but, but with an eye to, to what serves their interests best. And ultimately, their interest is regime survival. Um, and so, you know, a kind of haphazard, indiscriminate, uh, reckless response is, is not likely. And, and what do you think the time frame is on this rocked back on their heels, uh, responding to consolidate domestic uh, uh, capacity uh, ver before they turn to the... Uh, the response against the United States or against Donald Trump personally? I just think there's no predictable timetable. Um, you know, this is this is something that uh, the Iranians have dealt with pretty significant blows before. Um, the 1988 downing of a civilian airliner um, by the United States military accidentally, which was not the way the Iranians interpreted it. Um, it actually helped precipitate uh, their decision to accept a ceasefire in the war with Iraq. Um, but there was a long nurtured grudge and there were attacks against even the, the family members of the, the captain of that ship um, that have been credibly attributed to Iran uh, years later. And so I think, you know, we're, it's not inconceivable that we will see, um, you know, some kind of a short term backlash. But I think um, this will be a carefully planned and calibrated response uh, over the long term. You know, as I think about um, the the fears that were sparked by news of what happened last night, um, I think, you know, there is certainly the calculation of the Iranian government itself and the notion that revenge is a dish best served cold. But there are also all these Iranian partners around the region, some partners, some proxies, some clients. Um, but many of them act with a certain degree of autonomy. And indeed, we've seen parts of the IRGC act with a certain amount of autonomy. Um, you know, it, the example of the downing of the American drone, there's a lot of speculation about whether that was something that was sort of ordered from the top or an opportunistic strike. Um, opportunistic, but with leadership buy-in, no, no conceivable alternative. Okay. So I guess one question I have is whether not necessarily um, a directed retaliation, but whether we might see 
attacks against American presence, American interests in the region by some of these partner slash proxy forces, whether that's in Lebanon, um, in Iraq. And of course, let's remember that the deputy head of a major Iraqi militia group was also assassinated along with Soleimani last night. Um, you know, the American presence across the region is large. It's dispersed. It's not only the official presence, but a lot of private sector. And you mentioned Trump hotels just as one example. You know, I think about American University of Beirut as a pretty vulnerable target. Um, so is that the kind of thing we should worry about? And Dan, I would ask you to chime in on this as well. Yeah. So Dan, put on put on your uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani protege hat. Um, and let's take as a given uh, Suzanne's caution that we're not talking about the next few days. We're talking about a time and place of their choosing. What uh, what does what does the uh, what what are the places where they can most hit us hardest and would be expect what what would you be looking for in response? This is an exceptionally difficult question because it depends on a few factors that at least I don't know and I suspect the United States doesn't know. Uh, first of all, uh, do they have targets that are already on the shelf? Um, in the past, it was reported that Iran had cased a number of U.S. embassies around the world, are uh, really presumed as a you know uh, almost a deterrent effect that we would know that they knew that they could blow them up and we would adjust accordingly. Uh, if you look at the broader Iranian shadow war with Israel, uh, Iran has uh, done you know, very deadly operations in Argentina. We've seen Iran acting in Thailand. We've seen Iranian-backed groups in Bulgaria um, and, of course, uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, so this really is a global playing field. And when things were heating up uh, almost a decade ago, we saw a rather amateurish but nevertheless real Iranian plot targeting the Saudi ambassador in the United States. But I also want to echo Suzanne's point, which is this is a regime that incorporates a lot of different factors into its use of violence. And some of that is regime survival. And in the past, it has been very cautious about U.S. military superiority. It recognizes that its own military, no matter how good it is at supporting paramilitary groups, is no match for the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Army. And that if it goes high enough on the escalatory ladder, it's going to lose. So Iran is both wants revenge, it wants to send a message to the United States, yet it recognizes the limits to its power. What makes this tricky, though, in particular, is the stature of Soleimani. To go back to Suzanne's first point, that this is someone not only who is a longtime and key operational figure, but also someone who's iconic someone they can't simply dismiss as yet another general, yet another warrior who has moved on. It's someone who they've lauded, who they've played up, and thus they can't dismiss him. So you have a lot of different factors here. And I think you have to look and worry very widely. And these could be places where there's a large U.S. you know, unofficial civilian tourist presence, and that could be Europe and the Middle East, um, but also especially U.S. military bases. The obvious place to look for now is Iraq both because that's where the fighting has been and because um, of the uh, uh, pro-Iran militia commanders that were also killed in Iraq. Um, I would also look at Afghanistan, where Iran has a significant presence and where there are U.S. forces. But 
you can think of this in terms of different levels of retaliation, where an obvious one is against U.S. forces, but those are going to be better defended. And of course, they can fight back very effectively. Then you have U.S. official facilities, uh, embassies, for example, but also things like American University of Beirut that have a U.S. label. And then you have U.S. companies, U.S. individuals. So there's a whole gradation. And as you go farther down that list, it's less desirable for Iran, but it's also easier and maybe something that they want to do opportunistically rather than a long-term plot that takes many years and has the potential to be disrupted. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, so I want to flag a, f a few other possible vectors um, and uh, before focusing on one in particular. One is Iran can, can loose Hezbollah on northern Israel at any time, which is a high-value symbolic target. The second is they have played uh, pretty rough with oil facilities in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain is also pretty vulnerable in that regard. Third is cyber attacks on the banking system, uh, which they have uh, been pretty adept with over the last few years. And uh, the fourth, uh, which um, is, you know, uh, something they have not done recently, but they are very capable. You, you mentioned the, uh, the Argentina attack. They are actually capable of supporting and launching major, major, highly remote terrorist operations. And so I, 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 I think there's like a lot of different possible vectors of, of response. Uh, but last night, both Tammy and Scott focused on one in particular, which Dan just mentioned that I want to ask you both about. Scott, you mentioned what you you were you were a civilian State Department official in the green zone for two or three years, a year and a half. Yeah, um, and um, you tweeted a bit about what your uh, uh, anxiety level would be like if you were an overseas uh, State Department official in the Middle East right now. And Tammy, you expressed specific concern about U.S. Embassy Beirut. Um, so I'm I'm interested for both of your senses of like. Are U.S. diplomatic facilities, both in region and out of region, uh, a, you know, to what extent should we be worried about a Benghazi kind of situation or, you know, at places anywhere in the world? Well, I'll, I'll start in 
um, and say, first of all, that my thinking on this is informed in part by the experience of sitting in the Near East Affairs Bureau of the State Department, you know, looking across our diplomatic presence in this region at a moment when um, there were a lot of popular movements and mass demonstrations, some of them directed by specific political agendas and some of them not. Um, that was a much more diffuse kind of security challenge for our diplomatic facilities. But, you know, even that, um, when you're just talking about large numbers of people uh, who don't necessarily have advanced technology, um, you know, even that requires a very carefully thought through response in terms of how you harden facilities, um, how you instruct your diplomatic personnel, do you reinforce um, and with what kind of force and capabilities? Do you evacuate? Do you shut down an embassy? We faced all of those scenarios over the course of 2011-2012. And, you know, what we're talking about here is, on the one hand, you know, much more directed threats so we can anticipate who the attackers might be. And we know something about their motives, their capabilities, their organization, and so on. And we, you know, these are people that we already watch very closely. Um, but we don't necessarily have the capability to defend against those actors at every place where they might potentially strike. And different diplomatic facilities around the region are defended in or secured in very different ways. Um, you know, Scott can talk more about Embassy Baghdad and, and the very elaborate and layered security architecture there. But most of our diplomatic facilities in the region are nothing like that. Um, Embassy Beirut is, you know, is a compound, a fenced off, defended compound high on a hilltop outside the city. Um, Embassy Cairo is, you know, a block away from Tahrir Square. So um, these things can vary enormously. And when I say that I'm worried about Embassy Beirut, it's not because they're in the middle of a city and particularly vulnerable. Embassy Damascus was particularly vulnerable. Um, and and we ultimately had to evacuate and shut that facility down. Um, but I worry about Embassy Beirut because of the actors in Beirut that might choose to target it because of their capabilities. And and so we're talking here about Hezbollah. And I also worry about it because of the incentive. Um, and, you know, both in Iraq and in Lebanon, um, there are there's a major political crisis underway that involves, among other things, um, questions about the Iranian role in influencing local politics, questions about Iranian clients or Iranian partners in local politics. And so there are Iranian-linked actors, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon or the PMUs in Iraq, that have, it, uh, that have their own interests, their own incentives, um, which might, might or might not push them in the direction of attacking American facilities. But I do think it's something to watch carefully. And I think it's important to remember that the way the United States government messages its own intentions and strategies in this moment will affect the calculations of those groups. And so I think that's something the U.S. government needs to be thinking very, very hard about. Specifically in regard to uh, Iraq, you know, the embassy there is one of the most secure embassies in the world. Um, but it's designed with and thought through, and frankly, the people there have lived through a certain set of threat and excess. 
Baghdad and Embassy Baghdad has always been a piece in the middle of a very violent game. Um, but it's a game with a certain set of basic rules and a game with a certain set of moves that the actors do. Rockets, harassment, kidnapping at one point, although thankfully not for a long time, although I think that's a major concern now uh, or should be in, in Iraq particularly. Um, other actions that have targeted embassy and U.S. personnel, and I should also say NGO personnel and other um, private sector people who also work in Iraq who may be Americans or just people who may think are Americans if they're Canadian, European, um, uh, or seen as allies somehow, I think is a big concern. Uh, the cons- What I tweeted, and I stand by it essentially, is that I think I would have been more scared last night if I were an embassy Baghdad employee than I was when the embassy was under assault two days earlier. That's because if it's under assault, under that situation, uh, we still knew that we were in a tight cycle of escalation where both actors seemed to be understanding each other, escalating in relatively small steps. Um, we knew the Iraqi government was striking a note where they're trying to balance the balance the two. And there's probably going to be some counter pressure where they're never going to let it go so far as to completely overtake the U.S. embassy. Um, I don't think we know the rules of this new game yet. Uh, when you're on the ground in the middle of that context, it's incredibly scary. Um, the uh, You are in a situation where you don't know how the Iraqi government's going to react now because you have seen the United States take such a major step going so far as to kill a senior member of their government in some respects, uh, if, a, if a somewhat problematic and autonomous one, Mr. Mohandas. Um, you don't know if they're going to intervene to su- maintain your supply routes and your ent- entry and exit into the country and the other things that you need to secure your spot. And even though now they have another so and 50 paratroopers there um, uh, helping to defend the embassy, having 750 troops penned down in the middle of a hostile city uh, is not a great position to be in, <laughs> even if they are, are American soldiers. Um, it's a strategically really difficult quandary. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm going to be very surprised, particularly as we've seen calls for U.S. citizens to be removed from Iraq and exit Iraq as quickly as possible. I think we're about to see uh, a, a drawdown in a lot of different respects. It doesn't mean a complete withdrawal. And it's going to be played down as much. They're going to try and keep facilities open. Um, but the threat nexus, at least the risk of one seems pretty substantial. Um, and there are a lot of Americans spread in different corners around the country. And trying to protect that many all at once is, is going to be difficult. Um, and I think moving them out is going to be the safest solution. All right. Let's talk about the Iranian domestic side now, because as Suzanne, as you said before, this actually comes in the context of these uh, astonishing domestic protests and the quite brutal crackdown on them, in, organized by none other than Qasem Soleimani and his people, right? And so uh, I am interested in the question, which is obviously speculative, but you're the person whose speculation about this I would most value. Um, how does this play domestically in Iran? And we know how it plays to the regime and how the regime responds, but the regime is clearly deeply unpopular, at least among a certain sector of uh, the population that is willing to risk their lives in order to express that. And so I, I guess, does this create a kind of rally around the flag effect or is this uh, for the people for whom the Revolutionary Guard Corps is shooting people in the streets? Is this a ding dong, the, the, the witch is dead kind of situation? Um, like, what's your read on the Iranian domestic politics of the killing of Soleimani? It, I think it's a really good question. Of course, um, you know we're all speculating because it's no longer feasible for Americans uh, or those resident in the United States who do research to do any kind of that research in Iran. Um, 
I would make one small correction. It's not the it was primarily or not solely the Revolutionary Guard Corps that led the response uh, to the recent protests. Iran actually has a, a rich web of security services, uh, law enforcement forces, uh, which are essentially domestic police, uh, highly trained besieged paramilitary mobilization forces. Um, Soleimani led, of course, the overseas, the foreign arm of the Revolutionary Guard. Um, but of, but his early experience after the revolution was, in fact, helping to suppress unrest in Kurdistan uh, during the, the early months when, when uh, power was still being consolidated. Um, so he certainly has a background in, in cracking heads domestically. So but just, to, just to clarify that, would a, would a protester um, who has been shot at uh, understand that as having nothing to do with Qasem Soleimani, or would a protester see Soleimani as a kind of symbolic or even more than symbolic figure in the domestic repression? Well, I mean, he's a, he was a significant figure within the regime itself, probably one of the, if not the most identifiable figure um, within the regime. And so for anyone who's experienced regime repression in Iran, uh, I suspect they're not much of a fan of Qasem Soleimani and, and not terribly sad to see him pass from this earth today. Um, but, uh, you know, it is important that Iran actually has a, 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 an array of capabilities. And in fact, one of the reasons why the law enforcement forces and the besiege have taken a more prominent role in domestic repression is because at least of reports of concerns about the reliability of the Revolutionary Guard Corps during prior periods of protest, both in the 90s as well as in 2009 when millions came to the streets to protest uh, a contested uh, election result uh, and, and the sense, the conviction that the election had been rigged. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just important to note um, Soleimani's death will, I think, spark a variety of different responses among Iranians. He was uh, admired, I think, even by many who might uh, disagree vehemently with uh, the ideology or the implementation of the the ideology uh, under the Islamic Republic. Um, he was seen as a, in some circles as a nationalist hero, um, someone who took the fight to Iran's adversaries rather than letting those adversaries, whether uh, it was the Iraqis during the war or whether it was uh, ISIS more recently, bring the fight to Iraq, um, or I'm sorry, to Iran. Um, and so, you know, he, he, he cultivated that image, uh, the regime cultivated it for him, and uh, it succeeded, I think, in, in creating a sense of, of nationalist identification with Soleimani. Um, but, you know, let's be clear, this is a system which is under severe strain, both economically and in terms of its own legitimacy. There was a public opinion poll published uh, only yesterday on a pro-Rohani website that suggests um, large majorities of, of respondents who were, who were polled in Tehran uh, are uh, dissatisfied with the, the government, something like over 80 percent. Um, many don't expect to vote in upcoming parliamentary elections. There is a um, widespread expectation that the protests, while effectively put down for the moment, are going to morph and return once again. Uh, and so this is, uh, I think, a, a real moment of internal strain. And I am skeptical that uh, the regime will be able to successfully pivot to 
a uh, a durable kind of uh, whipped up nationalism around Soleimani's death. Iranians um, recognize that part of their predicament is very much a function of the overseas adventurism of their own leadership. The protest slogans, uh, both in this recent round as well as a couple of years ago, have included very specific uh, denunciations of Iran's involvement in Lebanon and Syria and Yemen. And so, you know, there will be some um, who see the prospect of greater regional turmoil or of even a, a further American attacks on Iranian personnel as, as a spur to their own nationalism or simply a fear uh, for their own lives and livelihoods. But um, I, I think it, it, it will not uh, durably reinforce the legitimacy of this regime. You're, uh, you're describing uh, a society whose politics are actually complicated, which is something that we sometimes manage to forget about Iran. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, Dan, I uh, I want to ask you and Tammy in in sequence about the reaction among anti uh, uh, Iranian regional states, uh, particularly the Gulf uh, and Israel. Uh, I assume, like you know, we know kind of this is you know playing badly in the Twitterverse. But I imagine there are a lot of people in, in, you know, in allied Gulf monarchies that are pretty excited about it today. How, what, what do we know about how, how, how this is playing in the region among U.S. allied states? Uh, we know very little at present. Uh, we know that um, a number of governments have kind of issued warnings about possible violence and are taking the threat of an Iranian response pretty seriously. Uh, we also know that in the past, they've been critical of the United States for not being aggressive enough against Iran. Uh, but in a somewhat contradictory way, we also know that uh, countries like Saudi Arabia have both wanted the United States to be more aggressive against Iran, yet worried that the United States might be too aggressive and Saudi Arabia might be caught in the middle. Uh, what makes this all much harder to me is Tammy's earlier point that the Trump administration seems to lack a plan in the Middle East. And as a result, what the United States is trying to do is to um, really, I'll say, have a significant kind of game-changing escalation against Soleimani while it's trying to draw down and reduce the overall U.S. presence in the region. And the ones who are most likely to be caught in that are U.S. allies, where the United States is stirring the pot quite extensively, but at the same time, may not be there for allies when the, when they are needed. Um, and in particular, President Trump, uh, even today, has been tweeting that now may be time to get out of Iraq because the Iraqis don't want us there. And this is the message that the Saudis and the Israelis and others are actually quite worried about, that the United States in general will not be there in the long term. And as a result, for better or worse, they have to deal with the Russias, with the Irans, uh, and they'll be doing so with very little U.S. support. Yeah, I, I uh, want to footstomp that point and note that I've been hearing from Gulf governments as early as a year ago doubts about American commitment to helping them address uh, 
what they view as uh, widespread Iranian aggression across the region, and therefore, and questions about whether the Americans had a strategy or an endgame for this maximum pressure campaign, and therefore increasing interest on the part of Gulf governments in some form of diplomatic exit ramp, if they could find one. Um, for me, you know, I think that search for diplomacy began when Trump first announced his intention to withdraw American forces from Syria, which was in December of 2018. Um, and I think that that sense has only escalated. When I was in Manama at the uh, Gulf Security Dialogue in the end of November, I heard it again very strongly. And just today, Anwar Gargash, the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs from the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the most resolutely anti-Iran uh, governments in the Gulf, you know, but they have also, over the last couple of months, opened their own quiet diplomatic channel with the Iranians. Gargash's statement today says, in Arabic, in light of rapid regional developments, wisdom and balance must prevail and political solutions prevail over confrontation and escalation. So they are not like, Yahoo, you know, they're not celebrating, they're not crying today. They want to turn this into a launch pad for diplomacy and de-escalation. Um, whether that's Trump's plan or not, again, we don't know. You know, I, I agree with Dan. The nightmare scenario for them is that Trump is like, OK, I killed your biggest bad guy. Now I'm out of here. Bye bye. Um, and that, you know, that's not implausible given the simplicity of the thinking that we've seen from the administration so far. Particularly if, if, if as Scott suggests, the reaction from the Iraqis may be to deny uh, additional permission for U.S. Uh, operations or presence on their soil. And Trump is therefore left with the ability to say, well, they don't want us. Goodbye. All right. Uh, under normal circumstances, uh, if we had not hit Soleimani and we had only hit the other target of this strike, uh, that would be a big deal. We've just gone an hour talking and we haven't even discussed that the uh, uh, the other casualty here was Kataib. Uh, I cannot pronounce that. That the other target here was Kataib Hezbollah's leadership. And uh, so one question, Scott, you're a bit of a student of the various uh, uh, splinter groups in Iraq and the, the militias there. Um, how plausible is it that there will be fallout from that component of it that is independent of the uh, of, of the killing of Soleimani? Are these groups going to respond on their own? It's certainly a possibility, but I think um, not terribly likely, at least not any sort of major scale, um, for the simple reason that these groups have over the last two years, particularly as this They've taken on more political significance as PMFs. Um, they uh, have more political influence and they are coordinating more. It's more of a coordinated effort. Now, a big part of that was Soleimani himself, who is visiting there, coordinating, helping to form the most recent government um, by bridging allegiances between those groups and other parts of the Iraqi polity. Um, and, and with his absence, it's possible maybe they're going to lose a little bit of this coordination and cohesiveness. Um, but I'd be a little surprised. Uh, those groups still get a great deal of money and support from the Iranians. Uh, I think they still look to the Iranians for a significant degree of direction. Um, so you may see 
smaller scale retributions. I'm thinking of things like kidnappings, maybe errant rockets, um, things that are still very serious and dangerous and and tragic if and when they occur, um, but aren't at the level of a major sort of response on sort of a military scale. Anything that size, uh, the Iranians will know that the Americans and others probably are going to attribute it back to Iran even if Iran may not have actively been involved in planning or supporting it, and it's going to trigger problems for them. Um, so I suspect they are going to be urging caution and that those requests will be taken seriously um, for any sort of, again, large-scale action. Maybe a little bit of a loosing of the dogs around smaller stuff um, that doesn't uh, solicit a military response. And that that is scary for people who live and work in Iraq. All right. Uh, we're going to finish this up with a single yes or no question to you all to be answered in sequence. I'm warning you in advance. It's a totally unfair question. Uh, we're going to put Dan on the spot first since I don't have to look him in the eye. Uh, Dan, if you were president, get considering all the factors we have discussed uh, over the course of the last hour, and you had been asked yes or no, go or no go on this strike would you have authorized it? Not now, maybe later. Does that cheating count? Yeah, I think that's that's okay cheating. Tammy. If there was, in fact, intelligence about an imminent attack that his assassination would prevent, then yes, with better preparation and consultation with those affected on the ground. So I How's that for a caveat? I would have done it my way, not the way they did it. <laughs> yes. Suzanne, yes or no? Yeah, I can't give the one-word answer. Or um, give the one sentence or the three-sentence <laughs> answer. Yeah, I did a whole paragraph. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a, a clear um, determination, I guess, myself. I, I sympathize um, with how catastrophic this is going to be for um, all kinds of American interests in the region. Um, but it is difficult for me to appreciate um, how keeping Qasem Soleimani alive and well and continuing his role in domestic and regional repression uh, of uh, would necessarily advance a, a better better region. So I, you know, I, I, I don't think. I guess I don't have a great answer, but I think the reflexive. Uh, critique and um, hysteria that we've seen in various places is problematic. All right. So we have one not yet. We have one yes if. We have one I don't know, but I don't like the reflexive ante. Scott, yes or no? No. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not in Iraq. Maybe later elsewhere. Probably not. And certainly not at a moment where Iran's own internal inconsistencies and problems are putting it at a nadir of its power and that the opportunity to confront a major external threat gives them the opportunity they need to consolidate. This has been a special emergency edition of the Lawfare podcast. Uh, Thanks to Dan, Suzanne, Tammy, and Scott for assembling on remarkably short notice. Thanks to Michaela Fogel, who has been the audio engineer and assembler of of all present. Uh, uh, You need to do your part to support the Lawfare podcast. You should tweet. If you are uh, listening to this emergency edition, please tweet it, share it on Facebook, because most people in your lives do not have access to a conversation of this quality from a group of people like this. And you should take it upon yourself to improve 
their quality of information by sharing this with them. Uh, and you should also rate the Lawfare podcast on whatever podcast distribution service you use. If we had music on emergency editions, we it would be played by Sophia Yan. So, but we don't. So, we don't. It isn't. Uh, and uh, the Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. It is produced, as always, in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. And I think this podcast put together on this kind of notice with this group of people is an incredible illustration of the power of the collaboration between Brookings and Lawfare. Uh, and thanks uh, to you all for listening, as always.